much. I agree with you in theory. In theory, communism works. In theory. Hello and welcome to Works in Theory podcast, uh, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. Uh, I'm Nate and I'm here with my co-host Alicia. Hey. And Tom. Hello. And we are going to be continuing our discussion on Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution by Peter Kropotkin. Today we're going to be talking about uh, chapters five and six on mutual aid in the medieval cities. When I first read the titles of these chapters, I was like, Okay, you know, uh, mutual aid is not necessarily something I associate with uh, 10th or 11th century Europe. Uh, when I think of the Middle Ages, I think of like kings and knights, uh, but not necessarily mutual aid. And so reading these chapters uh, was both, you know, sort of enlightening for the reason all of the chapters are, you know, working up this theory of mutual aid uh, in, in human society, but also just because just interesting historically to me, because I didn't know basically any of this stuff yeah like i think if i were to think of you know what would daily life be like in a medieval city i guess it would be like i I don't know like just kind of like today but there are people with swords walking around like knights and stuff and then the king occasionally comes by and and robs you like (laughs) like bring out your dead you know like fucking uh (laughs) yeah monty python like just like terrible squalor and like i don't know deprivation uh but yeah like the picture he's painting here of of the sort of autonomous uh honestly almost communist medieval cities is very different yeah it uh i definitely also learned a lot reading these and found it just fascinating i mean not that i didn't learn a lot from the other chapters uh but one thing that i did wonder about was uh we're all like american north american so it'd be interesting to hear from somebody who was raised in Europe where these cities actually still exist physically, at least and some of the like social hangover, hangover, holdover, holdover <laughs> still <laughs> exists. Uh, Cause over here, like uh, let's see, they didn't even think about coming over here at that point yet. So yeah. So we may just be showing our American ignorance here or North American ignorance here. Uh, but <laughs> bear with us anyway. Yeah, if you're if you're screaming at the the radio or whatever, the radio. Do people listen to radios? I'm just screaming. You're screaming at In your Europe, phone. They do. I'm just screaming at your phone, like you ignorant plebs. <laughs> <laughs> Take a history class, then you know. Fair enough. <laughs> well, we did, and uh, our teacher was Peter Kropotkin. So uh, basically, the outline of the medieval cities he's talking about here uh, is that like these were sort of autonomous political units. Uh, like they weren't just vassals under a king, like the kind of the way I was picturing, I would picture medieval Europe. And he even says uh, that uh, like when he's describing these cities, that the cities didn't even know the kind of centralization, the people like it was just not part of the way that they envisioned society, the kind of, centralization and the idea of um being ruled by a different body that's not right around you the cities in medieval europe were sovereign and autonomous and like that's just life yeah i think at one point he says it wasn't a state within a state it was the state itself 
Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, your whole life was, was, uh, you were sort of actively participating in it as, yeah, a member of like just a, a municipality. Not that uh, Kropotkin is known for his, you know, concise quotes that we've been pulling, but just on that, it says self-jurisdiction was the essential point and self-jurisdiction meant self-administration. Uh, right here, yes, the, the the commune was not simply an autonomous part of the state. Such ambiguous words had not yet been invented at the time. It was a state in itself, like you said. And so, like, what did this look like in day-to-day life? He talks about uh, the peasants had two fundamental rights, and, like, I guess it's it's the maintenance of these two rights that uh, that he is calling their autonomy. Uh, you know, to, this is sort of evidence of their not being under the yoke of, of a king or anything. Um, and the rights are the common possession of land and, uh, like Alicia mentioned a moment ago, self-jurisdiction. Uh so there's this uh, great quote here that I think we all like, individ- like independently pasted into the notes, uh, where they say, where he says, in olden times, when a king sent his vote to a village, the peasants received him with flowers in one hand and arms in the other, and asked him, which law did he intend to apply, the one he found in the village or the one he brought with him? And in the first case, they handed him the flowers and accepted him, while in the second case, they fought him. Mm-hmm. They have a really interesting relationship with like lords and kings, different from I think our collective understanding of kings. Like kings just rule over the land, and that's that. But the way that it's described in this book is that sure there are kings, and the kings assume authority over a territory, but the city states are still still hold a lot of autonomy and have the power to fight the king on equal footing in a lot of ways that we did not understand or realize yeah and like demand that he sort of uh go along with their laws right is like what they're talking about in that quote so in that sense yeah they they are sort of more equal to the kings than than i was picturing you know your average person in the middle ages uh in comparison to a king uh but then he we have this other quote here where he sort, where he seems to sort of imply that uh, that this idea was that this idea developed later, and that like the idea of a king in medieval Europe uh, was not necessarily understood as hierarchically, uh, but it's more just like I don't know, like almost more like uh, a position of like unofficial authority. Is that the sense you guys you guys got? I'm talking about this this quote where he talks about uh, the king of the nets. Uh, on fishing boats in Norway, uh, that the, the the commander of a fisher fishing boat uh, was called the king of the nets, and this is sort of supposed to show, I think, uh, like how much more loosely that term was used than than we are thinking of it, and how much more flexible it is too. I think, yeah, maybe that's what it is. That um, it's a temporary leader, like right? You're you're assembling for a project or a specific goal rather than just ultimate and eternal authority on all matters. Which I think we we saw that a lot in previous chapters in the different iterations of human society as well. Yeah, and it's like sort of this idea of leadership without rulership, maybe. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if that's the best way to put it, but yeah, this idea that somebody can sort of be the head person on a project without being the boss of everybody else on the project, uh, without, you know, having the power to 
arrest or kill the other people on the project if they don't do it the way they want. And then when that project is over, they just dissolve back into the rest of us. Yeah. And this this part in particular that, um, you know, the Duke or the King wasn't a ruler of people. Supreme power still belonged to the folk moat. Folk moat. Not even a commander of the popular militia. When the folk took to arms, it marched under a separate, also elected commander who was not a subordinate, but an equal to the king. So that's interesting. Like they elected somebody that was equal to the king when they uh, when they marched with arms, and that's I think a pretty different way of thinking about what it would be like to live in a medieval city than what I would think. Because I kind of assumed, well, the point of the king is to, what, have the army, which is what eventually we see it kind of became. But the point of the king is to have the army to fight for you, I guess. Yeah, or at least that's what made him king was that he had an army. Yeah, right. but yeah, it's just a very different idea of kingship. And, you know, reflecting back on these notes now, I feel like I kind of come out of this and I'm I'm not exactly sure what a king was. <laughs> You know, because there are other, there are certain parts where they talk about kings, they talk about lords, and it sounds like it's more like what I sort of was thinking about kings and lords uh, without, before having read this. Uh, but then, you know, obviously there's all these quotes that we've just recited here that, that paint a very different picture. Right. Other times it's like the idea of kings are off like playing their own little like territory rulership game and people pay attention sort of, but mostly do their own thing. Yeah, and he he says specifically the king was a lord on his personal domain only. So I, I don't know, maybe it's like, and I think this is something I've heard uh, David Graeber talk about before. But this idea that we sort of don't ne- shouldn't necessarily take uh, king's word for it when they tell us how much land they have control over, <laughs> because they have a lot of incentive to exaggerate. Yeah, so maybe it's sort of like the idea that there are these autonomous cities not within the kingdom, but just totally like just outside maybe even the geographical bounds of the kingdom not to get too far ahead but i think kropotkin talks about basically that because of this restriction the lord started moving closer into the city into the borough so that they could say like oh no actually i own this area i own you people like um because it became harder to manage you know to be able to to make that claim to be like well i don't even live there but yeah i'm gonna say that i have power people like i don't think so (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, I I did really I really like this about the king of the nets, like you pointed out, Nate. Um, the commander of, of a flotilla of boats, or even a single pirate boat, was also a konung. <laughs> Until the present day, the commander of fishing in Norway is named not Kong, the king of the nets. And I thought that was really interesting. This just this little part about, or even a single pirate boat. Like, I yeah, <laughs> I, I I I really I was I'm so. Uh, sad that Graeber's not going to finish his book. I think he was writing on piracy, and that would have been. I just want to know more about how pirates worked. They seem they seem like really cool anarchists. Yeah, I bet we can find something to read for that. Oh yeah, we'll put a pin in that. Yeah. yeah, we'll do an episode on pirates. I used to love pirates when I was a kid. <laughs> Another thing that we don't really learn or. Ah, talk that much about anyway in american schools about uh medieval times is like how people met their needs on the day-to-day 
Um, there's this thing called Medieval Times where you like go and watch people joust on horses and shit down in Toronto. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, I know what yeah, Medieval Times is. Cool. <laughs> and uh, so you like, eat, you know, like chicken legs and stuff, and it's supposed to be all legit. But it turns out that like, I mean, maybe people did eat that way. <laughs> but I thought it was really interesting to see um the bit that they were talking about corn a lot um but just as an example of uh how resources were distributed and how they were um municipally controlled like i think uh, municipal is probably the wrong word but they would bring well, all yeah, items it's, to- it's almost like a type of communism right yeah um they would bring the items to market and it would be open to everyone um at the same price and then at some point if um if there was still some left over people could buy it cheaper or uh like a baker could claim it at a cheaper price um but there was a big focus on making sure that those resources would be accessible to everyone if somebody did buy that um remainder they could only make what they called an honest profit on it. There was regulation there. Yeah, like communism, as you said. Yeah, and I was specifically thinking about like the part where he says, uh, apart from the calamities, so long as the free cities existed, no one could die in their midst from starvation, as is unhappily too often the case in our own time. Right, and so the picture he's painting of these cities is like one that's not just like politically autonomous, like separate from the king, governing its own affairs democratically, um, but also like, that, yeah, as Alicia was saying, has this sort of like communistic uh, system of distribution. To tie back again to some of the other chapters, another one of my favorite quotes uh, from a different chapter was talking about how, I don't know if it was the barbarian chapter or whatever, but like for lack of a better word, how barbaric it seems for um, people to be starving beside their neighbors in European cities while... um, we see some of the other traditional practices in other places as uh, extremely foreign, but like that one, even in medieval era, it was, it was still weird to let your neighbors starve. Yeah, absolutely. And it was like the prevention of starvation was sort of like seen as the responsibility of the community and not just of the individual, you know, you're on your own, prevent yourself from starving. And then even more interesting, I think, is uh, not just, you know, how they distributed the goods, but how they were made um, and how they weren't, you know, supposed to be making. It wasn't like you made for the general public. You didn't produce goods for the general public. You produced for your guild first, uh, which were a brotherhood of, of men and women, uh, probably mostly men, I guess, uh, <laughs> in medieval times uh, that were making things or whatever and like a job. Uh, who knew each other, knew the techniques of the craft. Um, they named the price of the product, appreciate the skill displayed in the fabrication of the labor bestowed upon it. I'm obviously quoting directly from this. <laughs> um, but then the guild, not a separate producer, offered the goods for sale in the community. The guilds were like a body of self-regulation and accountability for the quality of the products and the price of the products just to keep everything fair for the work that went into it and the utility of the product rather than having that controlled by some sort of third party yeah exactly and and i mean like honestly this is sort of what everyone looks for they want 
this kind of, you know, locally grown, locally made. You want to find the craftsman that can make your table and sell it to you directly because you know you're going to pay them, uh, you know, you can agree together on what that costs and what, you know, they can show you, like, this is my skill and whatever. And that seems like a very big deal that people want, but capitalism kind of prevents us from doing that in the name of efficiency, in the name of just, you know, making as much as possible. Um, To some degree, that's useful, but... To some degree, it just hurts. Like, just, I don't know, maybe I'm biased, like, as a a maker myself, but, like, um, the alienation of it is just fucking trash, like, and it just creates a lot of trash as well, which is inefficient. So you have to choose where you want your efficiencies to be, I guess. Yeah. Efficient efficient is is a funny word that people like to use and attribute capitalism to being so efficient when uh most of the time it's efficiency in being profitable. Like it's the only thing that its aim is to do is to make more profit and have the most profit. So if you can be wasteful but make more profit, that's considered efficient and that's not really a good way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Or you can make an inferior product, right? And be more efficient that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think this would be a great like time to uh, just stop and, and mention a little bit more about the guilds because uh, he, he makes a big deal about them. Uh, I think at one point he sort of describes the city itself and then the guilds as like sort of two poles of like social organization during the medieval period. And uh, I hope the listener doesn't mind, but I think it's worth, once again, quoting Kropotkin at length a little bit here when he says, uh, it was much more than just an eating association, the guild, or an association for going to church on a certain day or a burial club. It answered to a deeply inrooted want of human nature, and it embodied all the attributes which the state later appropriated for its own bureaucracy and police, and much more than that. It was an association for mutual support in all circumstances and in all accidents of life. It was an organization for maintaining justice, with this difference from the state that on all these occasions a humane, brotherly element was introduced instead of the formal element, uh, which is the essential characteristic of state interference. And so basically, these are more than just like sort of trade unions, uh, like we have them now, or even like they existed like uh, decades ago, right? This is almost like like a a trade union, social club, a like religious organization uh, that he even compares it to a state. And so it's, it's really this very intimate organization that is, that is organizing your entire, your entire day, your entire life. But under that specific jurisdiction of whatever their guild is about. Right, right. So they're like making the products, selling the products, but also like they're all, I don't know, sort of in it together. And in that sense, it's like a union. But uh, And it sounded like... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it sounded like there were simultaneously longstanding guilds and temporary ones that formed around a specific project. They talk a lot about the buildings and the beautiful structures, some, many of which still exist, and how they would have been organized and built by guilds that um, dissolved after that project was finished. Yeah, so he says, uh, whenever men had found or expected to find some protection behind town walls, they instituted their conjurations, their fraternities, their friendships. Uh, all of those are in quotes as if they're some, you know, like a technical term, uh, united in one common idea and boldly marching towards a new life of mutual support and liberty. And this is the section, uh, like you said, Alicia, where he's talking about all of the sort of great works of art and especially architecture that are accomplished during this period. 
Um, and I think, you know, the point of that is he wants to show that, uh, that these sort of like great works of creativity, uh, come out of this, this communal culture that exists in the cities and the guilds at this time. Right. And it's sort of like pushing back against that idea of like, uh, the, the solitary genius artist. Yeah. Which is interesting because, um, we usually think of, you know, one person, Picasso or, uh, how, what is his name? Howard Rourke or something from the Fountainhead? These individual, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these individual, um, you know, people that we think of as being like the drivers of ideas that everything falls apart without them. Um, I have never experienced that in my own life as far as building or making something, unless it's just me doing it. Uh, I don't think I've ever had where everything would literally fall apart if this one person wasn't there, right? It would just, I mean, except for right. if they're the unless person with you. money. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'm totally necessary and I cannot be let go. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, unless it's the person that's literally just like, I'm funding this, then uh, usually everybody has, you know, their own set of skills and their own uh, way to contribute that it doesn't make sense to say, you know, it's an individual hero that 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 we attribute most things to and so i think that's um you know an interesting contrast where i can't think of a, i don't normally think of uh especially if i think of in you know medieval things i don't think of you know groups of people working together i think of individual people usually starving or painting or <laughs> i don't know what but um not necessarily like you know working to build a cathedral i never even thought about how that was made it just assumed somebody decided to make a cathedral and they were like i'm gonna do this and they hired a bunch of people like i don't know the hiring a bunch of people part was interesting too actually there was a quote about how hiring people out for work was just like not a thing you worked within your guilds yeah, the quote here was, uh, there was not much room for hired work in the early flourishings of the medieval cities, of the medieval cities, still less for individual hirelings. That's coming out of the context of actually learning your craft, going from apprentice to master through just practice. That probably ties into the fact that like you don't just hire somebody off the street everyone who did this work was committed to it for many years of practice. So you're, you're, you're sort of hiring, but not hiring. Like you're working within your guild to get those things done instead of having the alienated labor or whatever Marx calls it. What do you think? Cause I, I bet a capitalist would say that that's that that would be stifling that the fact that everybody had to go through the guild and nobody, no individual was some great idea that like had some great new way of, making cathedrals or whatever like would never be able to do it because they would always just be stuck in the guild i don't know this is this is what i was thinking about because as soon as you uh, started talking about individual hirelings i was like oh that's like independent contractors but i think maybe i don't know tell me what you think about this i think an important difference maybe is that these are at least according to Kropotkin, these are like democratic associations it's not like uh, the guild leaders like get to decide and they're the boss of all the people in the guild yeah that's what i would imagine is this does not work if there is still one head of the guild that makes the decisions that you bring the the request to and he just doesn't even talk to anybody else, doesn't run it around to people and ask. That doesn't make sense. I mean, it's possible, um, but it doesn't seem like that would work super well. I would start to feel pretty upset. 
Like if I were in this guild and I find out like, hey, we've been getting requested to this job, but you just decided not to, like sounds really cool. Or or if I were to come along and say, uh, you know, I have this great idea and they just brush me off, like I'm not going to stick around. Like that's not, that doesn't, if, if I can find, and this is, I think, where, you know, a capitalist would say, oh, yes, that's how businesses work right now. Like you can, if you don't like your job, you get a new one, all this stuff. Uh, a lot of flaws in that thinking, I think. But um, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm a software developer and I think this this kind of mentality actually plays out every day at my job. And when I don't have the ability to influence something, right, to say, like, I think this is a bad idea. I think we should change this. I think we should rethink this part or whatever. Uh, I start to feel pretty frustrated. And that is when I start looking for new work because, um, you know, I'm on a team. Like, I want to work with other people, take their input, take my input, build something. Um, it just sucks because I don't want to build the thing I'm building. But <laughs> that's a big, that's a much bigger problem. <laughs> yeah, that's why you need a guild, right? Right. Which I, I guess is an interesting, like, you know, we don't have guilds now necessarily, but we have, theoretically, you have unions. Um but I think that there is a big difference between, you know, paying dues into a union that basically is my understanding to to protect you from the bosses just trying to exploit you versus, uh, you know, having a group of people that are all skilled in the same way and that you're just, you know, making decisions autonomously. Right? I don't think a union really makes decisions. They just, I mean, you make decisions about particular things, but they don't make decisions about like what work will we do next yeah definitely they're not they're not that all-encompassing organization um like these guilds were and it's interesting you were saying like you were talking about the you know one of the biggest issues is you're forced to work on things you don't want to work on um and i just happen to be looking exactly at this quote where kropakin says in the medieval cities much of what we describe now as utopia and was accepted then as a matter of fact but we are laughed at when we say that work should be pleasant but quote everyone must be pleased with his work the medieval Kutenberg ordinance says. So yeah, it's uh, it's possible, you know, it's been done before. And then even further, I like this next part. And no one shall, while doing nothing appropriate for himself, what others have produced by application and work, because laws must be a shield for application and work. So basically, you cannot have the situation we have now, where people do not produce anything, yeah. <laughs> and they still take basically credit. it says bosses are illegal. Yeah, <laughs> but this does come to an end at some point apparently because here we are yeah and so yeah we can we can move into talking about uh what he says happened to these these free cities like they were so great and he definitely thinks they were great uh and uh, you know i'm pretty convinced if everything he says here is true uh what happened to them how come they're not still around um and i guess the typical view in europe and i guess that kind of answers our question about uh how much Europeans know, knew that this was the case because there was a typical view about how how the decline of these free cities happened. Correct me if you if if I got some of this wrong, but that there were some sort of like ro- roving gangs of warriors that were attacking cities, uh, and therefore like the the cities needed to sort of turn to the king and say protect us. And he was like, okay, but then I get to be king over you. And again, that's the typical view. Uh, Kropotkin thinks that that's not exactly right. Um, but is that is that what the gist of what you guys got from that? Uh, yeah, I think so. That basically, you know, they, they assumed that we assume or the typical assumption is to protect us from war, we need an army, we need gold to pay the army, the king has the gold. It's kind of like just like a linear thought path of, 
of how how do you how do you protect yourself? And yeah, so what Kropotkin says is wrong about that view is that he thinks it's more has more to do with a uh, with a desire to have sort of like a maintenance of peace through law. Uh, and so his point here is to say, you know, it's not actually like warfare that caused this permutation of society, you know, that caused sort of this evolution of society, you could say. Um, but it was actually like a desire for peace. And so it kind of it kind of reminds me of uh, what we read in the animal chapters where he talked about that uh, most of the most of like the mutations, most of the evolutions of new species happen not because uh, two species are directly competing with each other, but because one species like leaves to try to avoid competition, that it's actually like trying to avoid uh, conflict and competition that leads to like new and creative evolutions. Yeah, and I think this is um, really interesting because this is, I would definitely have uh, said, you know, someone said, why do you think kings existed? It's like probably to protect people with their army uh, because war. And this goes back to what I think is everyone's fundamental idea of how life is is it's most people have an idea i think of what human nature is um once again i i don't know human nature exists if it's good bad or whatever but um i think a lot of people see it as well people are mean they're evil they're naturally want to have war so we need somebody with whatever power to stop that um as in as opposed to like people want order <laughs> they they want to make sense of their lives and so yeah. and so instead you coalesce to make law right which is different than fighting war it's more about just setting up some boundaries yeah absolutely it's yeah it's interesting because it, it 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 does sort of sound like two sides of the same process or almost just like a different emphasis like to say that that humans are warlike and therefore like needed to enter into society to prevent that, you know, like the sort of a Lockean view that we talked about in the last episode. Um, but it's actually more that humans are predisposed to want peace, but I guess maybe like war just exists in the world. And therefore like we need to, uh, like we, we have created all these societal ways of maintaining peace. Right. Right. I don't know. It's, it's interesting though, because it, it sort of is not, a definite break with the view of humans as warlike in my opinion mm. does that make sense yeah like you wouldn't need you wouldn't need a uh, societal organization to create law or rule if you didn't if there weren't things breaking that down yeah yeah so like if our if if our instinct is for mutual aid why do we need to create these things but i guess i don't know i sort of am answering my own question when i say it because it's like it's our drive to create those things which is the demonstration of our instinct toward mutual aid. And I think um, more importantly, you know, we do need to remember that, uh, especially because of material conditions, like outside of ourselves, people will do bad things. And even, even outside of those material conditions, even material conditions inside of ourselves, you know, people are, have a chemical imbalance in their brain or something. People do bad things. It's not like that goes away um, under some entirely different, uh, societal organization i don't know it's interesting because uh you know it seems like things were were good with the free cities but i guess there was just enough war that it seemed like it wasn't good enough yeah yeah i guess his his answer to how and why they declined it doesn't it doesn't get at the ultimate reason it says okay well they did it either to you know to protect themselves from uh, these roving bands of warriors or else to like maintain peace but it doesn't get at the root of like well 
you know, if everything was so perfect, why wasn't there peace to begin with? I, I think actually I, I completely forgot about this and I overlooked it, but he does talk about how basically the war wasn't with the peasants. It was between the lords and they were just using the peasants as shields and using the, the people, um, you know, as, as a way to get at the other Lord. And so uh, the peasants, it says they worked three days a week for the Lords, but took care of themselves. But the feuds between the Lords were brought down on the peasants. So the demand of the Lords live within the boroughs. This is the part I was thinking of where um, the Lords moved further in. Uh, and so I think this is, it's kind of just like a weird thing where, you know, some individual people got a little bit of power. They started trying to exert that power. Uh, it was, you know, falling down on these other people that are like, we don't have the ability to really like fight this off. If you're going to be the cause of this, you need to at least be in the center of it. And then they, you know, come in and they're like, okay, but give me more power. <laughs> and so I think it's just kind of like a weird transition where I don't know how you would stop that besides trying to stand up an army yourself and then does that even stop it because that's just more fighting right right and, and if we look at it from the sense of they're just looking for peace they're not looking for more war then it becomes clear like why you would be like well we can you know try to get into this ourselves and and have a huge break from the king or we can like embrace the king and say uh you know just protect us and we will do more for you and i guess the question is whether we can get beyond the need for those uh, those sort of more formal elements of maintaining peace and justice um, back to what he's describing in these chapters, which is like a peace and justice maintained, at least within the cities, uh, without the need for this sort of like hierarchy, this, uh, this formal element of law and justice. And I think in the next couple of chapters, he'll talk more about how um, like this, the nation state as we know it today, like it sort of subsumed all of these uh, aspects of society which were more democratically maintained during this period i kind of wanted to read this list we we sort of went through the part talking about uh art and architecture and how so many of these beautiful things came out of this communal period uh and he just literally has a list of <laughs> there is his parchment and paper printing and engraving improved glass and steel gunpowder clocks telescopes the mariner's compass the reformed calendar the decimal notation algebra trigonometry chemistry uh counterpoint these are all possessions which we inherit from that which has so disparagingly been called the stationary period. Stationary period, because that's where we invented paper <laughs> yeah. and printing. Or the dark ages is like, you know, I feel like what we call it here. <laughs> next time, uh, the next episode, we're going to finally finish uh, Mutual Aid. Uh, we've been at it for a while now. We promise the next, the next pieces we do are going to be much shorter than this. Um, but I do think these last chapters are important, and I think they're some of the most interesting and applicable of the book. I talked about uh, on the first episode, I think, how I expected this book to be more so about mutual, like the things we think about when we hear mutual aid today, uh, like giving out free food uh, at protests or like, uh, you know, food not bombs kind of thing. And I think uh, to the extent that he does talk about that sort of stuff and why it's better than, than having the state organize uh, these, the, you know, the distribution of food, uh, to the extent he talks about those, he talks about it in these last couple of chapters. Uh, so I'm really excited to get into that. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all next week. Communism work in theory.